Okay, I want us to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 11. Um, I'll, we'll show most of the verses I'm going to mention up on the screen, but if you'd like a Bible and you don't have one, there are some at the back. Um, but the Gospel of John, chapter 11, and I'm going to read the whole of this story, and as we read it, it will be uh, evident why. Um, in fact, let me read it first, and then I'll, I'll explain how we're going to do this. John chapter 11 from the beginning. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas called Didymus said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. 
But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now we're going to look at this passage, and the reason we do so, I think, is is obvious. When we're looking at something like this, it's very difficult. You've always got to get um, a balance in, in what we're doing. And I'm wanting to just simply answer the question of what does Jesus say about our brother David's death, and what comfort can we take from that? And the comfort is extraordinary. Um, I know, and I really do mean this, uh, I know exactly, exactly what uh, David would have me say. Uh, He was never um, slow to let me know what he thought of a particular sermon. In fact, he usually let his mother know first because he would send an email home saying, uh, David was tired today and I think he needs a rest, which really is, you can retranslate that and say the sermon was pretty much rubbish, um, which was his subtle way of putting it. But we are looking at this because it is, it is about Christ. Um, we are here to mourn and to pray, especially for David's family, for Anna and her family. But I ask simply of the God of all comfort, what do you say? This is a story that occurred in the year A.D. 30. Uh, Lazarus is an interesting name because it just simply means the one whom God has helped. And that certainly happened here. I want to identify seven truths that we can hold on to in this. Firstly, and I'm really just going to list them. A couple of them I'll go into a wee bit more detail. It is really important to realize that real Christians get sick and die as well. Sometimes when something uh, like this happens, we tend to say, well, this is not right. Here's a young man who's just a fine Christian, and it's just not right. And we, we as Christians, those of us who are believers, we know that we've got eternal life, but some of us also think that we'll just carry on forever. And those of you who are not Christians, basically that's what you think as well. That's how you live your life. All of us, I suspect there wasn't one of us here last Sunday who thought that we would be here the following Sunday doing what we're doing. We all think like that. It's, it's almost innate in our humanity to think that we exist and we are going to go on forever, but we are not. The highest degree of faith, says Spurgeon, is to be able to wait, sit still, and not complain. Some people would say, well, what's the point of, of being a Christian then? Well, let's just keep going because that's the first principle. The second principle is this, that ultimately, even in death, with Christ, there are no regrets, although sometimes there are mysteries. Jesus was asked to go and to heal Lazarus. He didn't. He stayed where he was for two more days, and then when he was dead, he started the journey to go and heal him. 
And when he got there, he was confronted with both Martha and Mary saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 21. And Mary, verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It was a statement of faith. It was a statement of trust, but also it was a statement of questioning and of bitterness. Lord, if you had been in this, surely this would not have happened. But what the Bible tells us about God, what the Bible tells us about Jesus, is that he does answer and he does care. When we are sick, it is because he knows it to be for our good. When he delays coming to help us, he does so for some wise reason. Jesus did not at any moment regret as though he had been taken by surprise. He did not say, oh, if only I had gone quicker, then this wouldn't have happened. That's a dangerous game for human beings to play. And you will not get the Son of God ever playing the if only, because he knew. Now, what that means is there are ultimately no regrets. It doesn't mean that there are no sorrows. It doesn't mean that there is no pain, but there are ultimately no, no regrets. God does not make mistakes. Einstein put it this way, uh, God doesn't play dice. God doesn't muck around. God doesn't let things happen just by chance, and then God suddenly turns around and goes, oh, I was surprised at that. I didn't think that was going to happen. What that means for us is very, very important. It means that we see this amount, but it's in a vast picture that's so big and so vast, we don't see the whole picture, we don't see the context, we don't see anything really that helps us to make sense of something such as David's death. And it's a mystery. And we're like the disciples, we don't get it. Look at um, Thomas in verse 16. Let's also go with him that we may die with him. Why are you going back there? Let's go and die. Thomas is just saying, what's the point? He doesn't get the bigger picture. He doesn't understand what's going to happen in terms of the cross. He doesn't have any of that. I think that Thomas at least is saying, you know, um, let's go and let's be with Jesus. Let's, let's die with Jesus. This is the same Thomas, by the way, who after the death and resurrection of Jesus says to the other disciples, you can say anything you want. I will not believe he has risen from the dead unless I see the holes in his hands and put my finger in there. And Jesus comes to him, Thomas, Thomas. Because he didn't get it, he didn't grasp it. Ultimately, there are no regrets with Christ, though there are mysteries. It would be foolish to try and take something like David's death, and say, well, here's why it happened, and we understand it, and this is what's going on here, and this is what's going on here. We may never, ever know the answer to that. This morning, uh, if any of you are listening to Radio Scotland this morning, thankfully, I, I listen to it, and sometimes it drives me nuts, but this morning it was really helpful because Kenny McDonald was being interviewed. And Kenny, some of you will know, it's an amazing story. 30 years ago, I can hardly believe it, because I remember the day it happened. I remember being there when we were playing football with Kenny and he got the news. His daughter, Alison, went missing. And he went out to India to collect her body. And when he was out in India, he was describing, again on the radio this morning, he was describing how he was praying and he wasn't getting anywhere with God until eventually he stopped. And it was as though God was saying to him, you listen to what I'm saying. Stop having, try and work it all out yourself. And Kenny became absolutely convinced, he believed this was of God, and he still does, 
that Alison was alive. He's been out to India 17 times. Now, it was not wishful thinking. He was absolutely convinced she was dead when he went out. He went out to collect her body. But uh, you can read the story. There's a, a book about it. But what struck me in, in the interview this morning more than, more than anything, and I thought it was so helpful, uh, Anna Magnuson, the interviewer, said to him, and, and to Rita, does the pain go away? 30 years. And Kenny was so honest. I mean, he's a free church minister. And he said, no, the pain doesn't go away. Sometimes you forget because there are other things that come in, but then there's always something else that comes back. And he says, it just doesn't, it doesn't go away. I think that's a very, very, very realistic uh, assessment of what happens in that kind of loss. Kenny was asked, uh, not in this particular interview, but I remember him being asked by another interviewer, uh, if you found out that Alison had died and you'd done all this searching in vain, would it shake your faith in God? He said, no, it's very simple. It would just mean that I'd got it wrong. God does all things well, and he doesn't get anything wrong. That's really, really important. We don't understand and we don't grasp why there are mysteries with Christ, but there are no regrets. The, second, the third thing is this. Death has lost its power and its sting for the believer. Look at verse 11. After this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. Christ speaks not just here, but in other parts of the Gospels, he speaks in this very tender way of the death of believers. The death of real Christians is sleep and not annihilation. You don't ever, ever, ever want to look at the dead body of somebody who you loved. You don't ever want to do that because it's not them. You look and you see, you see the shell. And sometimes people will come out with cliches. Oh, they're asleep. They look so peaceful and all that kind of stuff. No, that's not how it is. But for Christians, that is the case. If you are not a believer, I, I, don't, I don't grasp this. I don't understand this. Uh, David and I, when we discussed the euthanasia debate that he organized, we were talking about different conceptions of death and how people cope. And neither of us could grasp, and I can't grasp or understand, how an unbeliever copes. Because if you're an unbeliever, you believe that's it. They're gone, annihilated. Say all that you want. Talk on about memories and so on. That's it. They're gone. But Jesus says about his friend Lazarus, he says, he's sleeping. And the disciples don't get it. They take everything far too literally. And they say, well, in that case, if he's sleeping, he'll get better. Because it's good sleep, but good rest will help them. So let's not go, because it's too dangerous. But they didn't even understand their Bibles. Genesis 47, 30, but when I rest with my fathers, uh, we're going to sing, not this morning, but we'll sing this evening, uh, David's favorite hymn, Horatius Boners, I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. It's rest. Acts 7, 16, when he had said this, he fell asleep. That was Stephen dying, being stoned to death, and after praying for forgiveness, it's described as, no, he died in agony, but he just fell asleep. First Thessalonians 4 verse 13, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. There is a real sense. I am not in any sense wanting to undermine the sense of grief. In some ways, maybe it makes it even feel us 
feel it even deeper. But there is just such a sense that whatever we grieve for, and we grieve for ourselves, and we grieve for the families, and we grieve for this world, and we grieve at death, as we will see in a moment, Jesus' reaction to death. But we do not grieve for David. Let me read to you something that Robert Murray McShane said um, from uh, this, from that pulpit behind there, actually. Let me just read it as it is. He preached in, I think it was 1841, this sermon. Blessed are the dead. The world says, blessed are the living. But God says, blessed are the dead. The world judges of things by sense as they outwardly appear to men. God judges of things by what they really are in themselves. He looks at things in their real color and magnitude. The world says, better is a living dog than a dead lion. The world look upon some of their families coming out like a fresh blooming flower in the morning, their cheeks covered with the bloom of health, their step bounding with the elasticity of youth, riches and luxuries at their command, long bright summer days before them. The world says there is a happy soul. God takes us into the darkened room where some child of God lately dwelt. He points to the pale face where death sits enthroned, the cheek wasted by long disease, the eye glazed in death, the stiff hands clasped over the bosom, the friend standing weeper around, and he whispers in our ears, blessed are the dead. Ah, dear friends, think a moment. Whether does God or you know best? It is a happy thing to live in the favor of God, to have peace with God, to frequent the throne of grace, to burn the perpetual incense of praise, to meditate on His Word, to hear the preached gospel, to serve God, even to wrestle and run and fight in His service is sweet. Still, God says, blessed are the dead. If it be happy to have His smile here, how much happier to have it without a cloud yonder. If it be sweet to be the growing corn of the Lord here, how much better to be gathered into his barn. If it be sweet to have an anchor within the veil, how much better ourselves to be there where no gloom can come. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Even Jesus felt this. God attests it. Blessed are the dead. What we are doing today is not mourning a defeat. We are celebrating a victory. Number four, Christ loves with a passionate love that is beyond our comprehension. Verse three, the sisters say to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And then in verse five, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, I put those two verses there for the simple reason. Two different words are used for love. The sisters come to Jesus and say, your friend, your pal, Lazarus, is sick. The one you really like, the guy you have affection for. Verse 5 says that Jesus uses a a much deeper word, agape, which is a sacrificial, self-giving love, not the kind of natural affection we have for friends and family, but something that is way, way deeper than that, something described in 1 Corinthians 13, something that John speaks about when he grasps it in 1 John, and I think only by the time he wrote 1 John had he really got it. And David's favorite verse was, we love him because he first loved us. And that's the kind of love that has been spoken of here. Jesus is not some kind of, um, what's the word, spiritual guru or some kind of uh, God who's got it all worked out and he says, well, this is going to happen and this is going to happen and two plus two equals four and it's all very logical and it's all, I know what I'm going to do. 
There is a passion and a love in Christ that is way beyond our comprehension. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, says, the one thing I want you to know is I want you to know the breadth and the height and the depth and the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, Ruth read in Romans 8, nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is, uh, it's, it's just an amazing thing to grasp the love of Christ. Now, the trouble is that so many people don't get it. So many of you don't get it because you think God's love is evidenced in the way that maybe other people's love to you is in terms of uh, favor and everything else. I think that uh, there's a real problem in that because we think, well, if I get a job, if I pass my exams, if I get married, if I have a long life, that means that God loves me. But if something bad happens it means that God doesn't love me, or it means that God is rotten, or something like that. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that no matter what happens to us as His people, there is a love that is beyond our comprehension. It is a real, true, and passionate love. And that's seen also in this. Jesus absolutely hates death. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now, the term deeply moved there implies an emotion that goes right into the very heart of his being, which includes anger, indignation, outrage. Was this because of sympathy for the sisters? Undoubtedly. Was it because of the unreality and the hypocrisy of the Jewish grief? Um, And what I mean by that is the people who were coming along and who were kind of like professional whalers and just all joining in, was he angry at that? Was it the pathos of human suffering in the light of his own suffering being so close? Whatever it was, in verse 35, although Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and although he knew it was for the glory of God, and although he knew what was going to happen, he wept. And it wasn't professional weeping. It wasn't crocodile tears. It was because he was absolutely overwhelmed with anger and hurt and sorrow because he hates death. That's why he came. Hebrews says he came to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. He wept. And because of his tears, our tears shall be wiped away. I... um, it's not often you sit and discuss Nietzsche, but, uh, and especially with medics, but Mr. Jack was able to do that. And he and I were discussing Nietzsche one day. And one of the things about the German philosopher Nietzsche is the guy who said God is dead and so on. Uh, Nietzsche regarded tears and he regarded sympathy as weakness. The strong man is what he argued for. The strong man doesn't weep and doesn't show sympathy to the weak. Jesus is the ultimate strong man. Jesus is about to perform the greatest thing possible, raising someone from the dead, and he weeps. That's the difference. We have a Christ who loves us and a Christ who hates death. I don't like cheap talk by Christians about death as though it wasn't an enemy. It is. It's the last enemy. I don't like it when we brush it aside and say, well, well, never mind. It's even worse when we go through a period of mourning for a week or a couple of weeks and then we forget all about it. It's a wake-up call from God to us and God says to us how he hates it 
how death was, was brought in by sin into this world and how death is destroying this world and that death has caused him to send his only son to die in order to defeat death. He hates it and he is deeply, deeply moved by it. And let me tell you this, if you are not moved by this death in our midst, then there is something deeply, deeply wrong with you, deeply wrong. There is an incredible selfishness which says, I don't want to feel any hurt. I don't want to grasp this. I don't want to get this. There's an incredible stupidity because it's going to happen to you and to others as well. You have to come to terms with it. And we are a Christian church, and what that means is this, that we are a body, and what that means is this, that we bear one another's burdens. We don't do the tea and sympathy vicar type thing. We, we, we hurt with this. It was great to be at the prayer meeting on Wednesday. Great, but, but, but terrible. Terrible because of the sorrow and the pain that we felt. But great because it exemplified to me what the Bible says about the church. We're not an institution or an organization. We're a family. And when one member of that family hurts, the rest of us hurt as well. Jesus hates death. Then the death of the believer is not wasted. This sickness was for God's glory. That's what he says in verse 4. It was going to be more significant. God's Son may be glorified through it. He delayed for two days, not because he didn't care, but because this was going to be a means for blessing the disciples and bringing others to faith. Verse 15, we're told that. I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. The faith of the disciples is increasing. Jesus is training them. Let me say that's exactly the same with this situation. Some of you will react by saying, I can't cope with this. I can't cope with this. I don't believe. I can't, you know. Some of you, though, will get it. You will understand what is going on. You will understand the depth and the truth and the reality of what is, and your faith will be made stronger and deeper. And that's why in verse 40 and 41, Jesus says this, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. That's the purpose of the miracles. Jesus is not saying, if only you believe, the miracle will happen. He's saying to Martha and to Mary, stop thinking about the corpse. Rivet your attention on Christ. Trust completely in him. And you will see the miracle as a true sign. And that's what happens. All of this is because Jesus defeats death. The tomb was in the form of the hole on a rock, a cavern. He'd been in the tomb four days. The significance of that, that's verse 17 tells us that, is there was a Jewish superstition that the soul stayed around the body for three days. There would certainly have been decomposition. Don't open it up. Don't open it up. The body will smell. Roll away the stone. Why roll away the stone? Couldn't have Christ removed it himself? There's, of course, a picture in here of his own resurrection. But here he gave man something to do. He shouted in a loud voice, why? Lazarus was dead. Deaf people don't hear. He didn't. If he whispered, it wasn't that he wasn't going to come forth. He shouted in a loud voice so that the people could hear him. And look at verse 44. Astonishing. Sorry, verse, yeah, the the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I just think that's just an amazing, astonishing um, picture and image in your mind. So amazing, of course, that there are lots and lots of people 
who if you mention this to them, and you might be one of them, will go, yeah, right. That's just a story. It's just a story. You see a dead body, it's not going to live. Okay? Let me finish by looking at the responses that we have to all of that. There's the reaction of the disciples. They were afraid initially, afraid for Jesus, afraid that he was going to be killed. They were afraid of what was going to happen to them, and that that fear permeates throughout. There's the reaction of Martha and Mary. They were told sickness will not end in death, but their brother had just died. Did they believe it? Martha is the person of action. Mary's at home. Martha goes out. She's not waiting for Jesus. She goes to meet Jesus. Mary is the more contemplative, reflective type. She's seen as more emotional than Martha because we're all different. We all have different makeups. We all weep in different ways, if you like. She, both of these women, I think, are women who are deeply emotional in grief, yet deeply committed to Jesus Christ. They sway between despair and hope, and they have a strong faith in the power of Jesus. Martha's faith is extraordinary. She believes in the resurrection of the last day, and when Jesus says that I'm the resurrection and someone who believes in me won't die, and he says to her face, do you believe this? And she's there in the presence of her brother who believed in Jesus, who is dead and buried, and she says, I think the most extraordinary statement of faith in the whole New Testament, she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Jesus says, I am. I am the resurrection. Seven I am sayings in this gospel, this is the fifth one. He identifies himself with both resurrection and life. Because he lives, we also shall live. Mary is the one who anointed the Lord. And in chapter 12, you find her response where again she comes. She takes a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume and pours it on Jesus' feet. It's an extraordinary response from Martha and Mary. In the midst of that incredible grief, it's this incredible faith, a faith that the disciples apparently didn't even seem to grasp or get. And then there were the wider people. Verse 45, they observed. Many of the Jews had come to visit Mary and see what Jesus did. They put their faith in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them to try and get him into trouble. The Pharisees then discussed the matter in the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. They plot to put Jesus to death. Jesus retreats to the wilderness because his time for death was not quite yet. Even if someone says Christ, Luke 16, 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The reactions of the people at that time are the same as the reactions of people today. And I put our response in this way. In verse 9, Jesus says this, back in chapter 11, sorry, in verse 9, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. Jesus says, your time is fixed. You have a period in the light. When you have that period in the light, get it right. Time will come when you will be in the darkness and it's too late. It's too late. We have been given light. The Lord speaks to us. The Lord reveals himself to us 
And it's up to us to respond. David told me that when he was in the United States, although he was there on a basketball scholarship, it was a tough time for him. Probably one of the toughest times of his life. And it was only through coming to faith in Christ that he got through that. He was given light, and he walked in the light. We've been given light, and we have to decide what we do with it. Martha's response was a response very similar to John's statement in John 20, 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Faith is not just in Christ, but in an exalted Christ. It's not just in the name of Jesus. It's not in the religions of this world. It's not in the woolly and wet and pathetic so-called gospel that is communicated in so many pulpits where people will mumble on about hope and will never teach about the bodily resurrection. When they'll look at a dead body and say, God can't raise that, what kind of God are they asking us to believe in? Faith is in, has a clear view of Christ's person, his office, and his power. Christ is the resurrection. Second Peter, Second Timothy 1 verse 12 says, I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. Knowing Christ and the confidence that that brings. We have an extraordinary group of young men in this congregation, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I have limited experience, being relatively young myself, but uh, I think they're, they're a great bunch of guys, and the girls as well, but I'm thinking of the guys just now. And uh, I love it that we have guys who know about basketball and Pantera and also John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards, that they're normal, but there's a depth. And there's one book that uh, I've heard referred to several times, both by my wife Annabelle, who loves it, and by others as well. And it's called, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. It's a saying, it's written by uh, a woman, I've forgotten her name, but um, it's a collection of writings by various people about death, and it is extraordinary. And this morning I read my favorite one, which is uh, Jonathan Edwards talking about the day of a godly man's death. And if I could, I would read the whole thing to you, but I, I, we obviously don't have time. So I'm just going to read this one paragraph. The day of a godly man's death is better than the day of his birth. This is as contrary as possible to the notions commonly entertained by men who look on the day of a man's birth as a happy day, but the day of death as the most sorrowful and doleful day that man ever met with. There is nothing that man has so great a dread of and such terrible apprehension of as death. It is generally looked upon as the end of all good to a man, as entrance to a doleful state of oblivion and darkness and eternal separation from all enjoyment. But when a godly man dies, he receives a better life than when he is born. We call it death. It signifies the end of life or the abolishing and destruction of it, and it is so in appearance. But it is, in reality, the beginning of a more glorious life. There's a... Ramon, can you move on to the last one? There is. Jesus said this in the passage you read, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I'll tell you why I mourn.
I mourn because I've lost a friend. I mourn because I'm not going to be able to sit around and argue apologetics and theology and complete the course in medical ethics and do all those kinds of stuff. I mourn for Anna and her family and for Marianne and and David and, and Colin and Nicola. But I don't mourn for David and I don't mourn thinking that David is dead. Jesus said it. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I'm not saying this to try and bring comfort. I'm not saying this as some form of denial. But I believe with all my heart that David is not dead, that he lives. This is because of the resurrection and belief in the one who is the resurrection. It is extraordinary. It is wonderful. It is the reason we bow down and worship. We weep, we mourn, yet we rejoice and have hope. And let me say this to you if you are not a Christian. I can't, I get my head around most things. I can't get my head around why you would die without this hope. Why you would die without Christ. Why you never consider it. Christ came to save you from that. Christ came to give you life. Isn't it, what does it say? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He who believes in me, says Jesus, already has eternal life. When I saw David's body, it was horrendous and horrible. But it's his body, it's not him. He lives. He was given eternal life when he came to trust in Christ. And I believe this too, that though the body decompose, though the body be burned, though whatever, the Lord who created the whole universe will grant new bodies to us. And so it is farewell not goodbye forever. If you're not a Christian, I just ask you simply, let, think about this and and, and find Christ and come to Christ. And if you're a believer, I'm not being callous when I say this. For me, this is a wake-up call. And for you, it is a wake-up call. One minute, you're in Lunan Bay, swimming in the sea, your phone rings, you answer the phone, tears on the end of the phone, absolute stunned silence. And you realize it's not that this is impossible. It's that this can happen to any single one of us. And am I ready? And where is my hope? Is my hope in the fact that I hope my income is going to increase next year, or I hope that this church is going to be full, or I hope that I'm going to be in really good health, or I hope this. If that's our hope, all our hopes are going to be dashed. We will sing this also at the funeral. Our our hope is in Christ alone. How many times have you as a Christian sung that and then you've gone out and you've worried about something else? You've denied it by your emotions and denied it by what you're doing. Please let this be a wake-up call to us. We rejoice in the hope that Christ has given. We mourn, our hearts are broken. But thank the Lord, we do not mourn as those who have no hope. Amen. May God bless his word to us. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. 
for information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.